Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. A chat room or TV room or movie room, I'm not sure. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a special chat room. So, Ravinder, tell us all about it, please. It's an educational room. It's a support room. It's a learning room. It's about growing. It's a wonderful chat room. We have the, group, the best group of people, uh, and we'd love to see you there. So do come join us. That is at provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. All right. This week's spotlight is all about dogmatism in spirituality and religion. Dogmatism is generally defined as the practice of insisting on principles as incontrovertibly true and ignoring consideration of evidence to the contrary. A famous example of a dogmatic position in religion can be found in how the Catholic Church denied the Copernican model of the universe, because, after all, the earth was the center of creation. Another famous example is the absolute opposition to the theory of evolution that has been championed by some fundamentalists who insist the earth is only 7,000 years old. Dogmatism is not unique to Christianity, for it occurs in all religions, all religious factions for that matter, at some point in time, including in modern movements such as the so-called New Age. Dogmatic views delivered by charismatic personalities or people of power can have appeal to the best of us. One of the reasons this can be true is the method of argument employed by these charismatic individuals when they share these ideas. For example... What is known as a non-sequitur among logicians, or the failure of one point to logically follow necessarily from another, is often overlooked when the message is appealing, when we're being told what we want to hear, bedtime stories. So we have examples of would-be gurus arguing that their scientific discovery is so novel and unique that they must rush it to the public since science won't get it for years. And or, you know, we have these other fears, and and, and those fear mongers that feed it, those doomsday sayers, who have insisted upon a biblical end times and have found their fallacies flushed out only by the daylight of time. Another example is the traditional appeal to authority, Many gurus claim to speak directly to the Almighty or some other historically important personage, such as the Archangel Mikiel, and thereby circumvent challenge. An open mind and a little bit of scholarship could change many dogmatic views. An amusing aspect of the Old Testament is the possibility that some of the stories are parodies, Exegesis of some of the texts employing techniques such as foundation, historicity, authorship, folktale analysis, form criticism, and the like give rise to evaluating the narrative tradition 
and possibly a different light. There are many biblical scholars who invite you to imagine some of the biblical stories as possibly those told around campfires in an oral tradition. Since many of the events in the Old Testament tell the same story through a different lens, with even different outcomes, the idea goes like this. Think about the movie Blazing Saddles. Western comedy, a parody of Western movies, produced a Mel Brooks, you know, classic. Now, if you have never seen the classical, the traditional Western movie, such as High Noon or Shane, then Blazing Saddles would seem nonsensical. However, having seen these classical westerns, and therefore being fully aware of the context, the framework, the movie becomes hilarious. Is it possible that there are stories such as those told about Jacob in the Old Testament that are themselves parodies, and when they were shared thousands of years ago, the audience actually rolled in laughter? If you hold something to be absolutely true, regardless of information to the contrary, then you have become dogmatic. If your mind is closed because you already know the truth, the real truth, then you too have become dogmatic. I have stated many times the significant difference between the human animal and the non-thinking beast is the ability to reason, reflect, and think. Dogmatism trumps thinking. It's really that simple. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? You know, um, I think that is all uh, fascinating. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> You're laughing at me. You know, the whole thing of dogmatism and following a belief because you like it, so you surround yourself with that kind of information, and then you repeat it, and then you think that it's fact. Uh, I think all of this is worth delving into a whole lot more. And just because an authority figure says that it's true doesn't make it so. You know, just because it sounds wise, it doesn't mean that it is. Okay. Totally concur. Uh, I think the bottom line is to remain open-minded and to, you know, use that critical factor, you know, that we call a brain, the, the, that, mm-hmm. that cortical material, use that to really think through these propositions and not just grab what feels good and run down the road with it and not just, you know, don't accept it because, you know, you inherit it like you inherited your language. You know, many people are Christian because they were born in a Christian culture or they're Buddhist because they're born in a, in a Buddhist culture. Um, you were Sikh because you were born in a Sikh culture. You know, fact of the matter is that early impression that is made upon us as children because of our culture, because of that influence, that can be hard to let go of, even when we look at it in the light of day and say, but this doesn't make any sense. It still has tentacles that connect to many of us. So, again, the caution is, think about what it is that you choose to live by okay every week i read some of your letters as our way of paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful our last show featured linda bender and we discussed animal consciousness jerry wrote i love all your shows uh especially those you do about animals that has to be my favorite subject and dr bender was delightful 
Now, during the show, Dr. Bender shared some animal stories with us, and one was about a dog named Prince who left home, traveled to another country on his own, and found his owner who was serving in the military during a time of war. To this, Anna wrote, How did Prince find his master? A human being couldn't do what he did. Wow, what an incredible story. Really is an incredible story. That's for sure. Marchant wrote, I want to commend, I want to commend you and your wife on your radio show. Your guests are superb and your wit, knowledge, and humor amazes me. Thank you for hours and hours of educational enjoyment. I know he's talking about you, Ravinder, when he says wit, knowledge, and, you know, humor. <laughs> I, I might get a little bit of the humor. All right. Allison wrote, Thank you for all the wonderful work you both do, and may it ever continue. Carla wrote, love your radio program, and I just purchased your creative writing CD from Amazon. Keep up the wonderful work. Nick wrote, I've undergone a major shift these past few weeks. I'm ten times more productive, eating almost zero packaged food, doing yoga every day, sticking to my schedule, not missing any gym time, stopped hitting the snooze button, and have just an overall feeling of well-being. I thought back to what has changed in my life. I realized I started doing something so simple it almost seems too good to be true. I randomly started listening to Eldon Taylor's Intertalk CD again. I received it from Eldon about a year ago and had some random awesome things manifest. Not sure why I stopped listening, but I am, but I sure am glad I started again. With all of the law of attraction gurus and gimmicks out there, this is the one tool I have come across in 32 years of searching that has actually made a significant change in my life quickly and effortlessly. And Virginia wrote, Your stuff is awesome, Eldon. Thank you so much for inner talk. It has literally made so much difference in my life that I could cry when I think about it. Bless you for all that you do. Well, I love the letters we get from all of you, so thank you all very, very much. They do mean a lot to both of us. Isn't that right, Ravinder? Yes, it does. That's it. Yes, it does. Did it you, does. Did you leave your conversational voice in your office before coming Actually, into the Actually, we have some exciting chat, chat going on in the chat room. There's my confession. I see. Okay. <laughs> all right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon, E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook. Now to this week's show, Prophet's Daughter with Aaron Prophet. If you're over 30, the odds are very high you have heard of Elizabeth Clare Prophet. A quick Wikipedia reference informs us that Elizabeth Clare Prophet was an American New Age minister and religious figure, self-proclaimed prophet, author, orator, and writer. In 1963, she married Markel Prophet, who five years earlier had founded the Summit Lighthouse. Mark and Elizabeth had four children. In their nine years of marriage, they embarked on spiritual pilgrimages to Europe, Ghana, and India, where they met Mother Teresa and the Dalai Lama. Elizabeth, just 33 years of age at the time of husband Mark's death on February 26, 1973, assumed control of the Summit Lighthouse at that time. In 1975, Prophet founded Church Universal and Triumphant, which became the umbrella organization for the movement and which she expanded worldwide. Prophet called her members in the late 1980s to prepare for the possibility of nuclear war at the turn of the decade, encouraging them to construct fallout shelters. 
1996, Profit handed day-to-day operational control of her organization to a president and board of directors, maintaining her role as spiritual leader until her retirement due to health reasons in 1999. During the 1980s and 90s, Profit appeared on Larry King Live, Donahue, Nightline, among many television programs. Earlier media appearances included features in The Man Who Would Not Die, an episode of NBC's In Search of series. She was also featured in NBC's Ancient Prophecies. You might make a note of this one as well. In 1970, the Prophet family founded Montessori International, a school based on the principles of educator Maria Montessori where we sent Roy when he was young. You remember that, Ravinder? I do. I had no idea there was a connection. Okay. In the summer of 1976, the church's headquarters were again relocated to the campus of Pasadena College in Pasadena. Summit University, Montessori International, and quarterly church conferences were held there. The teachings of the Summit Lighthouse included a doctrine called the Path of Personal Christhood, or the Way of the Soul's One-on-One Relationship with God Through Christ Consciousness. Elizabeth Clare Prophet believed that she shared the gift of the Word, both written and spoken. It is said that she claimed to be in constant communion with God. The science of the spoken word, as Elizabeth and Mark taught it, was thought to be a gift of sound combined with meditation, prayer, and visualization. They believed that a divine gift, the ascension of union with God, was possible. I think that most probably think of ascension when they remember Elizabeth and Mark Prophet. Elizabeth Clare Prophet dictated many communications with the Ascended Masters, the Great White Brotherhood, And when Mark, who has been described as her twin flame, changed from this dimension, it is asserted that he actually ascended. So let me tell you something about our special guest, the daughter of Elizabeth and Mark Prophet. Erin Prophet is a scholar of religion. She is the author of Prophet's Daughter, My Life with Elizabeth Clare Prophet, Inside Church Universal and Triumphant. She is a co-author of the textbook, Comparing Religions, by Jeffrey Cripple. She co-authored with her mother, Reincarnation, The Missing Link in Christianity. She has a master's degree in public health from Boston University and is completing her doctorate at Rice University now. In early 1990, in response to apocalyptic prophecies given by her mother, Aaron Prophet entered a network of underground bunkers in Montana, along with members of her mother's Church Universal and Triumphant. Emerging to find the world still intact, Erin was forced into a radical reassessment of her life and her beliefs. She had spent her adolescence watching her mother vilified as a dangerous cult leader, even while attempting to meet her expectations by becoming a prophet herself. Prophet's daughter, the book, describes Erin's search for her mother's origins and motivations. With the craft of a storyteller, she describes the combination of health crisis and external pressure that drove her mother's ever more dire prophecies. She reveals how the allure of infallibility led her mother to a conspicuous downfall and how her mother's rapidly progressing Alzheimer's disease truncated any hope of resolution. A remarkable memoir with implications for the dialogue about power, group behavior, and the future of religion. It's reported in the Los Angeles Times obituary, Elizabeth Clare Prophet, 
who had been called Guru Ma by her followers, died on October 15, 2009. So on that, let's get Erin herself in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Erin Prophet. Eldon, hi, how are you? That was quite an introduction. Well, I'm excellent. You know, and before we begin, Erin, I want to compliment you on your bravery. Your book is so honest and well-written that it compelled me to move from page to page. Your story is one that we can all benefit from reading, whether it's the parenting lessons or the nature of our personal fallibility. You know, the forthright sharing of your story, in my view, is extraordinary. Well, thank you. I do appreciate it. It it uh, it took a lot. I, I talk about, I actually had gone through a lot of therapy and worked with a Jungian analyst and uh, after I left the church, actually while I was in the church, and then after leaving. And so the book represents what I felt was important to share with other people about my journey. Okay. What we like to do is we like to get, you know, three principal objectives accomplished with our guests, Aaron. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And then, of course, how do we use it? So if we may, let's begin with your childhood. What was it like growing up with parents immersed in a non-traditional spiritual philosophy, a mother who, you know, was seen as a literal prophet, and a father who, you know, is said to have ascended? How did you get along with other children? Did you attend public schools? Were you popular, involved in sports, athletics, or anything of the kind, and so forth? Tell us about your early childhood, please, Erin. Sure. Well, I thought it was interesting that you and Ravinder were talking earlier about the Montessori uh, International School. I mean, I don't know. Um, I mean, my mother started a school, Montessori Influence School, called Montessori International in Colorado in the late 60s, specifically for her children, but then there were people from the neighborhood who, who brought their children who had no idea that this was, you know, started by a religious group. So it was supposed to be a secular school. Um, I, you know, I had a lot of fun growing up. But we were exposed to a wide variety of ideas, all different kinds of food. We traveled a lot. Uh, it was always just sort of a, a circus of people following my mother around and swamis and uh, musicians and artists, and, you know, there was a lot going on culturally, as I'm sure you remember, uh, with the New Age. Um, we were sort of isolated, um, especially as the church began to feel towards the late 70s, early 80s, that it was being seen as, as a cult. Um, my mother <clears throat> was concerned that if we went to public school, we would be exposed to um, music and food that would detract from our spiritual mission, because all four of her children were seen as having an important spiritual role to play, and and our education was definitely directed toward that. So um, there was a lot expected of us. We uh, prayed a lot. We had a schedule of, you know, attending services with adults from a young age. And, um, you know, but I certainly don't have regrets. I mean, I appreciated it as well as all the people who raised me, because, of course, my parents were pretty busy, so they had different people teaching us everything from, we had a history professor, you know, giving, teaching us Sunday school, and, um, you know, many of the people in the church, because were very intelligent, uh, had, you know, high ideals, and what I see 
the experience as something that can show how anybody, even the most enlightened thinkers, can get caught up in in traps of dogmatism, as you were talking about earlier. Amen. Well, okay, so that's that's you as a small child. What happens when you hit your teen years, if you're being blocked from music and whatnot? What, what was dating like for you, Erin? <laughs> well, um, I was really only able to date within the church environment. We had sort of a boarding school, so there were about 60 or 80 kids in there whose parents had sent them from all over the world. And I mean, I think my mother was trying to create this alternate world for us where we could grow up without rock and roll and without sex and without drugs and you know you could see many of the parents in those days were, were afraid of what was going on with the 60s and they they just wanted to, to shield these sort of high souls from that so it did not turn out in the best way I mean uh, each of us children sort of rebelled in our own way although I think that I tended to get caught more and I also just enjoyed the the spiritual practices. I mean, I really liked praying. I really liked singing, and I liked to lead. So I wanted to keep myself pure for that. So as I write in my book, um, when, you know, after I finally go through college, and I won't skip ahead too far, but, you know, it's obviously growing up and reclaiming my adolescence becomes important because, I mean, my parents thought and everyone in the church thought that I was the reincarnation of, Mahatma Gandhi. So I was supposed to be very spiritual, and uh, it was a tough ideal to fulfill. I was a you know young girl. I wanted to date and um, had all kinds of romantic dreams. And so when it finally came time for reality and for me to leave that protected world, it was difficult. And so I do think it's important to let kids, you know, be a part of their world because they're going to have to live in it. Amen. So did you ever end up with a significant other? Um, there was a boy who was supposed to be the reincarnation of Gandhi's wife. <laughs> and we were sort of dating for a while. But, I mean, we had waltzes. We had, uh, you know, these sort of chaperoned events. And after I went to college, you know, we also had this sort of advanced education. So I went away to college at USC when I was 15. So... But I was living in a church ashram, so I would just get dropped off, go to class, and then come back So, and, and pray with the, all the adults at the ashram. So it wasn't really like being in college until my final year. I lived in a dorm. I broke up with my prior wife, and <laughs> prior life <laughs> wife. And, um, but I never really dated in college. I was still, uh, you know, wanting to support my, my mother, wanting to fulfill that vision, and so I ended up leaving for Montana immediately after my my last college course. Okay, and we're going to talk about that one uh, more after the break. But we've got a break coming up in just one minute. And, and so let me just, I don't know if you wove around or I somehow missed. You're, you dated, but did you ever marry? Did, you know. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, I married in the church. I married a boy I had met in the church high school. And, um, you know, I was young, and I was at that time being told by my mother that I had to either live with her or get married. Um, And it was tough. You know, it was something that, you know, I was curious, 
to know what um, sex was like, and the environment in our church was really, um, you know, and I think we it came out of Eastern ideas about sexuality. Right. I'm going to um, ask that, you to hold it there. When we sure. come back, we'll pick it up. We'll just leave okay. that as the dangler, because I believe you, <laughs> you were allowed sex twice a week for like 30 minutes or something. We'll talk about that, okay? <laughs> we're speaking with Erin Prophet about her life, work, and book, Prophet's daughter. You can learn more about her by visiting E Prophet. That's P R O P H E T. E initial E Prophet dot info. Remember to join Ravinder and her team in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. What is one thing you wish you could change about yourself? What if you could make that change happen with the click of a button? With InnerTalk, Eldon Taylor's patented and scientifically proven and effective technology, change begins to happen the moment you hit play. InnerTalk works by priming how you talk to yourself and when your inner self-talk aligns with your outer goals. Anything becomes possible. Visit www.innertalk.com to find your towel today. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Erin Prophet about her life, work, and book, Prophet's Daughter. Now, we ask our guests for up to three songs, songs that have some special significance to them. 
Music can elicit deeply emotional states of being, and in many ways our favorite music can say a lot about who we are. So, we just play I Ain't Afraid by the Clismatics. Why is this one special to you, Aaron? And how does it tell us about whom you are? Well, I think it's a good... I, I first of all, just I like the music, but um, it's also about refusing to cower before religious fanaticism. And um, I, I don't necessarily see my parents as fanatics, but I think that some of what they did might be seen as fanatical and their followers did as far as trying to preserve their perfect image. Um, and also what people, Christians, actually mostly did um, in opposing my mother's church. I mean, there were many the people who demonstrated, who thought our group was satanic, who really misunderstood it, you know, because they thought it was uh, somehow a threat to uh, the church or to God as they knew him. So to me, it's well, a song you... against religious dogmatism. <laughs> yeah. If you, uh, you know, if you hold the Trinity to be, you know, God, then when you start talking about you know, becoming Christ or merging with Christ or, you know, you become a threat. You you, you threaten their dogma. So, uh, and, and that happens everywhere. I found that I've never heard this song before. I found it very interesting. I'm not afraid of Yahweh. You have to be, you know, Jewish or a biblical scholar to know that that's referring to to one of the gods referred to in the Old Testament. I mean, in you know, we find in Genesis one account where... It's Elohim that creates everything. And in the next, you know, it's it's Yahweh that creates everything. And scholars disagree on what that means. And I know you're studying all that. That's a whole other subject. But uh, I found this song to be really, um, you know, uh, uh, to say some really powerful things. But has anybody ever challenged you about, you know, it being, you know, um, insulting um, so far, no. I mean, I've actually used that song in our when I, I actually give a lecture about um, new religions and religious violence in our Religion 101 class at Rice, and uh-huh. uh, nobody has complained about it yet. <laughs> okay, well, I, I can I can hear somebody jumping up, hollering heresy, but but no, <laughs> I, you know, it does it, it has some very powerful lyrics. All right, let's let's jump back to where we were before the break. You were you were about to tell me that you were curious about sex, uh, right? Within you know, within the compound itself, uh, there were basically rules on sexual behavior as well as other forms of behavior. Do you want to go ahead and unpack this for us? Sure. Well, let me first back up a little bit because the the word compound is often used to describe sort of uh, where new religions are. Um, but uh, it's not that it was sort of a locked-up place where nobody could come in or out. Um, And there are thousands of people who were part of my mother's church at the time that that, that this, uh, what people, what she's most known for is the so-called shelter episode where people went to Montana and built bomb shelters. So at that point, um, there were about five or six hundred people who were on the staff of the church, and and these rules about sexuality, I mean, they came really out of 
uh, what I would consider a Vedanta-influenced Eastern tradition, as well as theosophy, which I, I'm throwing these words out. We can talk about what they are. But basically the idea that the most holy people are the celibate ones. And this is valorized also in, in Western mysticism. And so um, for both of my parents, actually, the tradition they came out of said that you shouldn't have sex at all. And if you already had children when you came into the group, that was okay, but everybody was going to sort of be spiritually transformed and they weren't going to need sex anymore. So it was this sort of New Age utopianism that said that uh, sex was really about the body and the body wasn't important because the spiritual life was, was important. So in the, around the 70s, some people came to my mother and said, well, how can we live a spiritual life and be married? And she actually sort of liberalized this tradition and said, well, you can still have sex even if you're not trying to have children. You can have sex twice a week and, you know, no more than half an hour at a time, and you should pray before and afterwards. So this was really about people who were trying to live up to some high ideal. And I think that applying it to teenagers, applying it to, to young children who were supposedly these high souls was probably misguided. I mean, in a sense, we were supposed to uh, be the example for our peers, and we were also supposed to sort of hold the ideal for people who had just come out of the sexual revolution. And, you know, we had people in our group who had come out of, of the summer of love, and all of a sudden they felt they'd gone too far and they wanted to go back the other way. So, you know, there was a lot riding on our lives, and um, people were asked to leave or, you know, kicked out summarily from the group for having extramarital affairs. I mean, if, if you had sex three times a week instead of two, I mean, that, that was not going to get you kicked out. <laughs> but, um, you know, it was, it was sort of more this ideal. So when, if you married within the group, you were told about these guidelines. And um, it became more of something that, like, you'd go to confession in the Catholic Church and say, oh, well, I, I you know, went over the line, and then you'd get a penance or something, and you'd do extra prayers. But... It was, it was interesting because we had come out of, many of the people in our group actually had been Catholic. I mean, I think as up to half the people in one survey that we did. Um, so we, we were putting sin away, putting, you know, the old sin paradigm behind us. But we were looking at it from a karmic perspective, that you're, you're wasting your spiritual energy by having sex when you could be putting it into something better. So... Um, you know, I think that as as time went on, my mother realized it was unrealistic to to expect this of young people. And one of the disillusioning things for me was realizing that she probably had a more normal sexual life prior to marrying my father than she had allowed me to have because I was supposed to be so spiritual. And um, and so I felt that was wrong. All right, Let, let's talk a little bit about your father. How and when did your mother meet him? Um, he had already founded, as, as I said in the setup piece, uh, the summit. Uh, so how did his passing affect you, your mother, and the direction of the church? Sure. Well, uh, my father was had grown up a Methodist, and he'd also gone to some Pentecostal services, He'd gotten interested in Rosicrucianism and uh, what you might consider some New Age ideas back in the 50s and even the 40s. 
And so he was doing things like out-of-body journeying and meditation, and he really wanted to have an outlet for his ideas. He, he got thrown out of his Methodist church, and uh, he was interested in reincarnation. He actually joined Yogananda's Self-Realization Fellowship for a while, um, and then Yogananda died, and so he, he got interested in these groups that followed Ascended Masters, and one of the best-known was called the I Am Religious Activity, and by the 1950s, they were not that popular, but there were these other groups where they had people who were believed to be speaking, communicating with Masters, and he decided that that was direction he wanted to go, and he met up with some of those people, and he actually started doing his own, what you would call, what most people would call channeling work. They called it dictation. So he would take these messages from masters, and most of them, in fact, you go back and read what he would say, a lot of it could have come from Norman Vincent Peale. You know, it was, but plus some, some Christianity and plus some positive thinking. It was, they were really motivational messages. Right. And uh, my mother met him in 1961, and she had also been reading about these masters, and she really felt that she wanted to learn how to contact them. And um, that's something that these books, the books that were written by the founders of the I Am, which, who were called Guy and Edna Ballard, they'd written these books, which I'm sure you've seen in the New Age bookstores, Unveiled mm-hmm. Mysteries and the Magic Presence. And, the I Am Discourses, mm-hmm, that's what they're called. Yeah. Right? And that's, in fact, the I Am Discourses has a big passage about sex and how, you know, how unspiritual it is and how it's going to lead to your death. So my mother read that when she was in college, and I think it caused her quite a bit of guilt. Um, But in any case, she followed it, you know, but it was this high ideal of perfectionism that we're going to be these, we're going to basically become masters without ever having to die. And these books actually say that you can sit in an ascension chair. You were talking about ascension. Mm-hmm. There is believed to be an ascension chair that you could sit in, and it would sort of transform all of your, you know, and they, they use scientific concepts, so it would transform all of your atoms and molecules to a higher vibratory rate so that you would simply disappear right. and without having to die. It's ascension, and if you yes. did it properly, you wouldn't even leave an ash in the chair. Just right. And you're out yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And many of the early people in the group thought that that was how it was going to be, although as time went on, the idea became that you could die and still ascend. And so my father died a normal death, and many people in our group also died, but they were believed to become ascended masters. And people would pray to them. People wrote songs to them. It was just like they'd become a Catholic saint. And so I was extremely upset when my father died. I mean, I was seven, and everyone in the group, you know, said that he'd become an ascended master, and I could pray to him. And um, uh, I don't want to stop you, but your father is uh, the ascended master Lanello, according to, is, did I say that correctly? Yes, that's correct, okay. and it sounds like a funny name, and it's supposed to be the... the uh, putting together of two of his past lives, of, of Sir Lancelot and the poet Longfellow. So, okay. <laughs> um, you know, but that, so that was his name, and he had used it as a pen name before he died, and he died suddenly of a stroke. And so, of course, you have all this mythology that had grown up around the I Am about what Ascension was. And 
how after old he, were you, Aaron? I don't, I don't mean to interrupt, but how old were you when, when he passed away? Because he was really young. He was like 55, mm-hmm. wasn't he? Yeah, I think 54 or 55. Mm-hmm. Um, he, <clears throat> I was seven years old when he died. Oh. And, yeah, so it was quite upsetting to me. Um, what happened is that my mother became a lot busier. Um, the, the group actually spent about a month sort of in seclusion where people were just praying all day. And um, we children would be watched by different people. And it was sort of, sort of fun for me because I didn't have to go to school. But, you know, I, I was sad. And uh, I think when... You know, the idea was you rejoice when someone ascends because they don't have to come back. Right. And hopefully that will happen to you too one day. But I really found later in life that no matter what you think happens to someone's soul after death, it's still so important to, to give people a chance to mourn. So did you know? It, so I take it, if if I've understood you correctly, that you really didn't have the opportunity to mourn. That this was a, a celebratory kind of event, and and you were encouraged then to pray to your ascended father. Do, do I have that right? Well, um, people were sad. I mean, I think people had a great affection, love for my father. The people who lived at the headquarters, especially, and and the as well as the members. So, you know, people definitely cried, but people also wore white. I mean, we were really trying to transform the old traditions. We weren't going to wear black. We weren't going to attract, you know, sort of bad energy from grief, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was, um, I'm sure it was a bittersweet moment for most people, and as well as my mother. I mean, she had, he was her spiritual partner, um, but she went on, she was, very well organized. She had worked in the Christian Science Church, and she knew how to run an organization, I think, better than he did. He was sort of the, the poet, the visionary. And so she went on and transformed the group, which was then known as the Summit Lighthouse, but she transformed it into Church Universal and Triumphant and with rituals and you know, groups in almost every major city. And she just well, embarked upon the next 20 years were just constant travel and work for her. Right. Amazing growth. Uh, must be credited to what your mother's work was. Let me let me ask you this. Uh, there were four of you, and uh, siblings, that is. Um, and you've gone your different ways. I mean, one brother, Sean, uh, purportedly is an atheist, at least if you read his blogs. Uh, and you're studying. What is it like for the four of you now? Are you together? Uh, do, you, do you get along? We share. We share very close bonds. We don't agree on everything. Um, my brother and I. You know, we say we probably agree about maybe ninety percent. I mean, I consider myself to be an agnostic okay. who enjoys spiritual experience. And I participate in a variety of different services, and I don't really know or care uh, what it's doing. I simply know that it makes me feel better, makes me feel more connected to other people. So, so that's my spirituality. My two younger sisters also have their own spirituality, varying uh, different beliefs, which I won't speak to, but we certainly have a have a commitment to staying connected with each other because we've we've got 
a unique shared experience. Okay, so now that's two sisters and one brother. There were four of you, weren't there? Yeah, so there's me, there's my older brother, Sean, and then the two younger sisters. It's, we were the four oh, children okay. of okay, Mark. Okay, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Well, duh. <laughs> so, all right, yeah. Just add you in, that's all there. Okay, you be, you tried to become a prophet, literally speaking. Okay. What was that like for you? Well, um... You know, my, I was, of course, the, the key, one of the key reasons why people came to our group is because they wanted to experience these dictations, which, which were these live events where people would sit there and my parents would speak for a master and it could be Jesus, it could be Buddha. And, um, and they felt, people felt transformed, people felt healed. I mean, so as I was growing up, I was watching people having their lives changed through contact with my parents. And so I thought there was something very special about that, and I actually still do. Um, you know, I just think that the presence of some kind of, of supernatural-seeming power does not mean that the person through whom it comes is infallible. And my parents would always say they were not infallible, but, you know, it becomes hard when you're establishing an organization to where somebody is actually fallible or to, you know, to establish some kind of mechanism or checks or balances and things. So um, as far as the question, oh, yeah, so my own involvement in being sort of a prophet, and I will say parenthetically that prophet is our real name or was my father's name. He got it from his father who was a logger from Canada and who'd come, his family had come over from Scotland. Of course, my father thought it was appropriate for his choice of work and my mother took the name on when when she married him but i mean i think i thought there was something special about our family and a reason why i had been born and so i really wanted to learn what it was my parents did and how it worked and so when i was in my late teens my mother began asking me to work with her in a spiritual way and so this was an exciting opportunity for me because I felt like it was sort of a chance to see behind the curtain, uh, you know, what happened. And I'm not sure that I have a much better sense after eight years of, of work with her um, uh, as, as to what was actually going on, but I did start to sort of learn how to train my intuition, I guess, to try to... Um, my perception and I would have images come into my mind and I would tell her what I was thinking or seeing quote seeing not actually with my physical eyes and um, you know she felt that that they were accurate that they were confirmed by her and so in a sense I was supporting her work although she would still get out in front of everybody and give these sort of amazing transformative dictations but um, when it came to to making decisions or when it came even to developing new doctrine, sometimes she would ask for my help. And so we became sort of a team, and that became problematic later on, I think, as we started making decisions about real-world events. Okay. Um... Yeah, I want to I go somewhere that's a little bit away from your mother for a second. 
In your studies today, one of the areas that you're working on is the notion that channeling and creativity should really be looked at, you know, as overlapping where they're traditionally not. And it, you know, anyone that has done creative work knows that if you get out of your own way, and I don't know any other way to say it, that it seems like there's a hidden author somewhere in the back of your head that suddenly starts giving you answers or pushing information out through the keyboard or the pen, depending on how you write. When you were doing this exercise, and I would think of it as a creative visualization sort of exercise, and you reflect on it today, do you think that that is the bridge that many people call channeling? Yes, I think that that channeling is is definitely a creative act. I th- yeah. Yes, I think it's a creative act. I think the difference is in how it's contextualized. I think that both events involve some kind of dissociation from present-day consciousness and awareness. I think, you know, the difference between a writer or an artist and, and a channel is that the writer and the artist says, this is my work, I wrote it. You know, I had a muse, but I wrote it. And then the channel channeler will say, well, this is not me, this is some higher being. Um, you know, when my mother would speak for a master, it had a certain sense of authority. And, and there are, you know, hallmarks of channeled work, which are that the material seems to flow together effortlessly. The concepts just kind of are there, and they fall into place. The um, person may speak very rapidly. And you can see this in some uh, areas of literature. For example, I think one of the mythologized sort of almost channeled literary works would be like Jack Kerouac's On the Road. Um, You know, he's said to have written that in two weeks, uh, sitting there at his manual typewriter on a scroll, which he put together so he wouldn't ever have to stop and change the paper. (laughs) Um, But I I think that there is an element of conscious thought that goes into channeled work also. I'm going to ask you to hold it right there. I don't want us kicked out by the computer and we have another hard break. If you'd like to know more about Erin Prophet and her life, work, and book, Prophet's Daughter, visit her site at eprofit.info. Now, we have a video for you during the break of her mother, Elizabeth Clare Prophet, discussing the ascension in the violet flame. You can see firsthand just outstanding charisma. You can check it out by joining the chat room. Go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. It's not your fault until you know better. Self-defeating, self-sabotaging thoughts can be eliminated. It may be difficult to accept, but the fact is magnetic resonance imaging shows us that your subconscious mind makes almost all of your decisions, while your conscious mind makes up reasons to explain your choices. In order to rid yourself of those self-defeating thoughts and ideas, the fear and doubt that can hold you back, you must change the way you talk to yourself. Nothing does this faster or better than our patented InnerTalk technology. Scientifically proven effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies, InnerTalk has repeatedly been demonstrated effective. Change has never been easier. Now you can improve your life almost automatically by rewriting the scripts hidden away in your subconscious. Guaranteed to work. No reason to wait. So don't delay. Go to innertalk.com today. 
Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Erin Prophet about her life, work, and her book, Prophet's Daughter. Now, Erin, we just played your second musical choice, Womb, by Tashiana Prophet, your sister, and I believe this is recorded live in a lounge, and so there's a little noise going on in the background. But please tell us, what's up with this one? This is Tatiana. and Tatiana. Uh, she Sure, yeah. And she's a singer. She lives in Los Angeles, and she wrote this song. So the words actually are from the Bhagavad Gita. So she's it's, and it's called "Womb." And she uses uh, "Never the Spirit was born; the Spirit shall cease to be never." And you know, we grew up around all these spiritual concepts, and you know, she's uh, woven it into her work. And I think it's it's beautiful whether or not you think the Gita is literally true or if it's an allegory or philosophy or what, you know, it's just a nice song. And I, and I'm happy that she's been able to take her, you know, vocal talents and apply them in that way. Okay. So the meaning of the song is that it's your sister and she's expressing her spirituality through lyrics from the Bhagavad Gita. Is that right? Exactly. Okay. That's uh, an interesting place to do it in a lounge, but why not? I mean, we all need help, don't we? <laughs> all right. Listen, uh, before the break, you were. do you want to pick it up with uh, your comparison of creativity oh. and channeling? Yes. Yeah, so I was talking about um, the similarities and how right. you get somebody like Jack Kerouac, who's in a sense, you know, putting 
putting thoughts together in a new way that hasn't been done before. Now, that doesn't mean he hadn't spent years out there interviewing people and writing notebooks, but all of a sudden they just fell together in a certain way in, in his novel, and he could see how to write it, and he did it in two weeks. So I see that similar thing happening in my mother's work where she would tell me she had some ideas floating around in her head for, you know, sometimes a week before she would give a, a dictation. And then you would hear them, and sometimes it would be events or people she'd met, and then she would, you know, go out and give this presentation, you know, often speaking for an entire hour um, at once without taking a break, without really looking at any notes or anything. And people wonder, well, how does she do it? And, you know, I mean, I think she had a talent, but I also think that there was some conscious uh, work in there. And so people would say, well, it's a fraud, it's a fake, because she, she read something in a newspaper article and then it ended up in a dictation. And I see it as being more complicated than that. I think that, that there are elements of personal psychology and channeling. I think there are, are you know, events of the, person, of the person's life that they've been exposed to. They may bring in the Bible or other sacred texts. They may bring in and, and, and their own ideas, but then there's this sort of X factor, which we don't know, and I know you study the mind and the mind body and the mind consciousness, and I don't really know what it is, but I do feel that there's a sort of X factor that comes in and sort of blends it all together, and that's the person's creativity, or that's what you might call the Archangel Gabriel. And um, I know you've had some people from the IONS group, um, and one of them... Um, one of the scientists from IONS actually says that um, people, people, if if having it come from some exalted source, sometimes it may liberate the creative talent. This is Michael Grosso, and I like this quote. He says, "The belief in spiritual agencies such as saints and guardian angels seems to involve imaginative constructs that are useful in liberating exotic aspects of human potential." And to me, um, this is almost a form of, of how the human species evolves is, is through these creative acts. And I know it would be, really be blasphemous for some people to have someone say, well, that's not really the Archangel Gabriel or that's not really the Archangel Michael or Jesus or whoever someone wants, you know, says it is. But, and I, I don't know, and I don't think anyone has any way of knowing. But I think that having people think that it's coming from some exalted source rather than their own brain, um, as, as Grosso says, it liberates the, the creative potential. Right. There's a certain freedom that arises as a result of that, for sure. You, you said your brother, you know, you contrasted yourself and your brother. He's the atheist. He's the, you're the agnostic. I want a little clarification. I mean, um, Michael Shermer and I actually had a conversation about this, and Michael said, you know, uh, I'm an agnostic, I'm not an atheist, because an atheist knows that there is no such thing, and I don't know how they can know something that they can't prove or disprove. So I'm an agnostic. And to me, that just makes perfect sense. Um, but if I use that definition and I set it over what you and your brother, you know, how you defined each other, I, I have to ask this. Are you saying that you believe it's possible that it was an archangel that sometimes communicated with your mother and that your brother doesn't think that is possible? Um, I would say that I simply don't know. And I guess 
you know, <laughs> that's what agnostics say, right? They don't know, and it, it almost doesn't matter to me. I mean, I've been recently reading uh, Franz Duval's The Bonobo and the Atheist, mm-hmm. and he mm-hmm. pretty much says he doesn't care. You know, he doesn't yeah, care. Yeah, we had him on our show, I know. Oh, you so, did? Okay, yeah. great. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, I have a lot of respect for where atheists are coming from because I think they see some of the outrageous acts that are committed in the name of religion, and they say it's it's all about those beliefs. And if we could just just get rid of those beliefs, then the world would be a, a better and a saner, more rational, happy place. And certainly, coming out of an environment like we grew up in, like my brother and I grew up in, and where people literally, you know, ask our mother to tell them who to marry, where to go to school, how many children to have, what to name their children, you know, is after a while, and, and that becomes the sort of overarching um, rubric that the whole community works by. I mean, I think you can see that there's a desire to not have any kind of divine authority um, at all. But I just uh, don't see that happening now, in the world. You- you were involved in a lawsuit against Church Universal. Unpack that for us. Tell us what that was about, will you? Um, well, um, in the late 1990s, of course, after the shelter episode, which was where we and everybody, a lot of my mother's followers built shelters in Montana, um, and uh, that's one of the things I talk about in my books. So I won't go into it here, but... Um, well, you ask, probably will, because I'll ask you about it sure. in a minute, but stay where you are. I like it, okay? <laughs> okay. So the um, the lawsuit was um, just very short-lived. It was actually, um, we filed a petition to gain guardianship of our mother because um, she had been having serious memory problems, and I believe that her memory problems actually predated the shelter episode, um, and, and I could talk about that more. But so I think that her illness was somehow involved in how out of control and crazy things got. But anyway, she'd been having memory problems throughout the 1990s, and there were people in the church who uh, didn't want the family to know about it, and all, all four of us children and by that point had left the ranch and, and were no longer church members. And so there was an effort to sort of cover up her medical condition, and to have a church vice president become her guardian and to sort of completely uh, take us out of the picture. And we felt that that was wrong. So um, we filed a petition to have myself and my sister declared guardians, and we ended up working that all out. And I actually shared the guardianship with a church member, and um, we ended up moving her away from the ranch property into a private home. And, you know, it all worked out fine, but, you know, as it turned out, in 1998, she was diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's disease. I mean, she was only, at that point, 59 years old, so it was kind of a shock for the whole entire group, and uh, she had also been an epileptic since since a young age, and I'll be happy to talk about that a little bit more if you want, but um, so, you know, we worked things out with the church. I think they realized that they'd gotten a little carried away. I think the church leadership had made an effort to try to normalize things and to have have a structure, and I still have my differences with them, but that particular one was resolved. Okay. Um, I, I guess 
do, how do you relate to the church today, Aaron? I, I'm trying to find a nice way to ask that question. But <laughs> how, how do you relate to the church today? Um, well, I, I've not been a member for more than 20 years. I still, to this day, find myself singing some of the songs and, and you know, repeating some of the decrees. I think some of what my parents wrote was really beautiful. And I think it's been helpful for people in their own personal spiritual growth. And one of the different differentiations I try to draw in my book is that there were people who just applied these sort of self-help principles in their own homes and lives, and they were fine. They didn't get involved in some of the, the other crazy stuff. Um, so I think it would be nice. The church, you know, continues. It's run by a board of directors. It has ministers. I think it's fulfilling a spiritual need for people. I think it needs to evolve beyond some of the concepts. I mean, you're talking about dogma. Um, you know, my, one of the things my mother used to say is she used to talk about the Sikh religion because in the Sikh religion there were ten gurus, and the final guru said basically, I'm the last guru. Nobody can have any new revelations after me. Right. And um, that's sort of what my mother did. I mean, there is, a, there is a possibility for there being another messenger, but everybody has to agree on it. Obviously, if someone is believed to have this this uh, line of communication to the masters, they gain more power in the group. And so um, it, was, it was interesting, and I can talk more about the, the, the authority and the power thing, but as far as my relationship with the church goes, you know, I've, I feel they've missed a lot of opportunities to really modernize and connect with, with people where they are today. I think that, um, you know, much, much of the important creative work was done back in the 70s and 80s, and people have moved on. People aren't really necessarily in, into the messenger paradigm or the guru paradigm anymore. I don't know. There's still quite a few channels out there, and uh, they have rather large followings. So, But let me ask you this. Now, you know, there were lots of cults, and, and um, I was in law enforcement back in, in the 70s, and, uh, you know, you would get cult watches and... Uh, and one of the reasons was you had groups that would, for all intent and purposes, um, attract someone to it and uh, get them involved in it. And then they would sign away all of their personal property irrevoc- irrevocably to the church. Didn't that also go on within uh, Church Universal? Well, there were different levels of involvement, and there certainly were you know, you had like maybe 40,000 people worldwide who had some involvement, and they didn't have a big financial commitment, probably much less than a lot of, of groups, um, like $30 a year or something. But the closer you got to the middle, the more uh, it kind of ratcheted up. And when we went to Montana and built shelters, the idea was that for those 700 people who were in Montana, they were supposed to make a 100% commitment. And many people did actually give their life savings, um, which was used to build the shelters. It's not like my mother had a, a Swiss bank account, but, um, you know, it was used to build the shelters. But then the people obviously couldn't get their money back, and some people wanted to leave and, you know, had a really hard time and struggled afterwards. And that's, you know, one of the things I address. I think there was just poor decision-making. Money was spent, money was really squandered uh, during that period because, there was so much faith and trust placed in the what was coming from the messenger at the time. Okay, let's go there now. Uh, in, in all fairness, let's you know, 
Alzheimer's is something, it's a disease, the onset of which is very slow, it's progressive, and it, it can often go undiagnosed for some period of time while it's, you know, wreaking its havoc. And epilepsy has its own uh, relevant issues that, that we might want to take on here. But if we put this in context, uh, your mother is um, essentially telling the world that there's going to be a nuclear war. And you build these shelters in Montana. Um, and and there you have food supplies, I believe, uh, for like seven months in the shelter and seven years in some nearby place. You correct me if I have this wrong, because a lot of this is from memory, reading your marvelous book. But you go there expecting an eschatological event. And you're up near Yellowstone Park, and you enter that shelter. Tell us what that's like. Sure. So um, I'll just back up a little bit to say that there were several events in the Church's history where we prepared for some kind of great karmic descent. And, And... these were sort of an intimate part of how we were relating to the spiritual world. We we thought that we could have an impact through our prayers on the outcome of the event. So in in the other cases, we prepared, but then we were told, "Oh, you've you know you've done a lot of prayer, so now you have more chance. You don't have you know the world's not going." It, it was never said the end of the world. I mean, we actually thought we were going to come out and build a new world when we were all finished, <laughs> mm-hmm. but obviously it would have been the end of the world for many people. So the scenarios that my mother was working with, which is almost like playing on a theme that she had played on before, only this time it was just a lot more serious, a lot more real, because there was always the spiritual events going on. We were constantly praying to dissolve the karma so that this war did not have to happen. And there's many people in the Church who think that today that we actually prayed the war away, and that's why it didn't happen. We can talk about prophetic disconfirmation and, and, and how that uh-huh. works, but that's certainly an explanation that was it was there, it was ready in the rhetorical toolkit, and when, when nothing happened. So I'll just to you know give you a little bit of the drama. We had almost a 1,000 people in this largest shelter complex that was privately owned that, as far as I know, exists in the United States. It was 12 or 13 acres. And it had uh, tunnels underground with little carts that you could push yourself along. Um, the church was not a hugely wealthy organization. It had put, you know, a, a significant investment into this um, because I think that the thought was that it was more likely it was going to happen than not. Um, you can People try to unpack her prophecies today and say that well, she never actually said it was going to happen, and that's true. But she gave people a lot of indications that she personally thought it was going to happen as far as decisions that she made and, and, and what she said to her family. So people were acting like it was the real thing. People brought weapons in inside. Um, people thought that, you know, there might be people coming to try to steal the food. It was sort of going to be this Mad Max-type scenario. And um, people had bought all kinds of Army surplus gear. Um, so this was not a small operation people had quit their jobs and moved to montana some people were just there for a few months but 
you know, I, I look at it now almost as a dramatic event that was used to, to justify God's justice, because, but I can get into that another time, because that was important that we felt that God thought we were important and special, and that God would actually save us and kill, the, you know, the, everybody else, <laughs> you know, so that was sort of the mode that we know, had gotten ourselves into. Noah kind of thought that, and a few others as well. So it's not unusual of human nature. So exactly. Well, it's interesting how easy it is to get into an apocalyptic mindset. I mean, people may remember that around this time, eighty-nine, ninety, was when the Soviet Union was falling apart, and you know, we were not stupid. We realized you know, that that things were changing in the world, but we actually thought it could become more dangerous if they thought they were losing control somehow. So, you know, people rationalize and justify things to themselves. People were also looking at other New Age prophecies, like Edgar Cayce's. I mean, Edgar Cayce had made some comments about Montana becoming the breadbasket of America, so people were buying farmland up there. And, you know, today it's pretty common that you've got all these, uh, you know, preppers. But back then I think we were... Some of the few, other than you know, some very some survivalists. So you had people who who had never done stuff like this before. You had you know most of, more than sixty percent of the people and in, in the people were women. We had elderly people. We had children. So um, it was almost like we thought we were going to go into a biosphere situation, and we would come out, and we had all these plans for you know we had we were going to we had generators that would run on wood chips so that we could make our own power, Um, and that we were going to survive not only this war, but somehow these earth changes that Edgar Cayce and other people had talked about. So people were contributing to the scenario. It's not like my mother just said this and they all agreed. And there were certainly people in the church who did not participate, who chose to stay in their homes and stay in their jobs, and they didn't have any sanction because of it, and they, they... continued to be church members afterwards. But, you know, the fact that nothing happened after we did two, we had two underground drills, and then we sort of came out and said, well, it looks like nothing happened, and we tried to pick up pieces of our lives again. But for me, it was was much bigger than that, because I felt that I had made a lot of sacrifices personally to be there, to not go out and try to get a job and see what kind of a person I really was outside the church. And so once nothing happened, you know, it made me start to feel that I didn't necessarily belong, at least in the leadership of the church at that time. So when the crisis was all done and the light of day was still standing there, credibility became the issue to you, Aaron? Well, my mother you know, always rationalize things, but at least for me personally, I felt that our credibility had suffered. I felt that people had made, you know, huge sacrifices. People had been working for months out in the freezing cold weather. I mean, we did not have to build these shelters in the middle of winter in Montana. (laughs) That was all done because we thought that there was going to be a war on March 15, 1990. You know, and so people. Okay, once yeah. again, I've got that hard break here. So, <laughs> okay. so we'll pick it up when we come back. Is credibility right. versus whether or not prayer actually 
averted the situation. The book is Prophet's Daughter, and it's quite a read. We're glad you chose to tune in today. We know you have many choices, and we hope you're enjoying the show with our guest, Aaron Prophet, and our discussion about her work and books. Remember to check out her website at eprofit.info. We'll be right back after paying some bills. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Hi, I'm Eldon Taylor, and you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment Radio. I'm so glad you could join me as we tackle those tough questions in search of the answers that really matter. But remember, this is a journey we are undertaking together, so I would love to hear your thoughts as well. Please send your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com. You can also join in the conversation by... Joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor, that's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. We've been chatting with Erin Prophet about her life, work, and her mother's and father's work, as well as her informative book, and I think a great read, uh, Prophet's Daughter. In fact, I, you know, I'm going to plug this book for just a second, because uh, as I said in the setup, um, it is so forthright, so, so, yeah, soul-bearing, if you will, that... Uh, it, it is just one of those books that when you read, you actually are there for a bit. You're actually vicariously experiencing what uh, Aaron went through. And uh, and it's a real roller coaster. And uh, as I said in the setup piece, I think the tentacles of our early maturation, especially those deeply felt emotions that are attached to spirituality, I don't think we ever really get free of them. No, no matter what we may say, no matter how we might progress in our life, they're still there. They're still in our psyche. They're still in that bag that we bring along with us. Okay, well, in this half hour, we'll take your calls. So if you have questions, give us a call or advance your comments and questions in our chat room. 
And remember, I love your comments and feedback, and a great place for that is Facebook, so I invite you to join me there today. All right, Aaron, we just played a bit of Going Home, sung by Paul Robison. Why this one? Ah, well, um, both my parents loved this song, and I chose the Paul because to them it implied they were going towards their ascension. Um, I chose the Paul Robeson version because he seems to me such a that he combines both mind and body in his spirituality, and it's this sort of elemental spirituality. Or I sort of feel that we don't have to know exactly where we're going, but I do sort of still have this optimistic hope that we as human beings are evolving a transcendent future together. And that, uh, you know, we like to think that we're being guided by, by higher intelligences. And, it, you know, it could be that it's really just our own higher consciousness in some way that is, um, you know, molding us to transform ourselves. And, you know, there are times when I'm very pessimistic also, but I, I like this song for that reason. It's a beautiful song. Okay. Before the break, I was looking for that culmination point. I I had asked you, was it an issue of credibility in your mind, or in your mind, is it possible that intercessory prayer actually, you know, stopped the world from going to war? Um, I don't think the world was going to war, and I don't think that we stopped it from going to war, <laughs> um, but... Uh, the scenario that we were thinking of, I mean, I, I just don't think that it it was going to happen. I don't think it's realistic, you know, in human time to have this catastrophic world war followed by earth changes. I mean, it was really about um, people thinking that it was really an attractive proposition in some ways to people who wanted God to, to make the world a more just place in, in which, you know, the spiritual life would, would triumph. Um so I think that people who are still in the church today, many of them just believe that they averted it, and there's actually a new thing. It's called avertive millennialism, and that's where you believe that you stopped the crisis from happening. It doesn't necessarily have to involve belief in God. It, it, couldn't, it could be because you believe that you, um, you know, change uh, the ozone layer, you know, uh, so you averted this crisis catastrophe that was coming but it's generally associated with the new age because in the new age people think that they have power that they're empowered to you know change not only their minds but the world around them and so i think that that gives rise to this new belief system so for me it was really about am i going to continue to accept you know that we've changed the future or am i going to realistically look and say you know, no, we just sort of screwed up here. We, we went too far. We prepared too much. We got diverted from our, our spiritual purpose. Okay, Aaron, I, I think you hit on something that's pretty important, and I want to digress for just a minute. Uh, your father was a Rosicrucian or studied Rosicrucianism. I won't say he was a Rosicrucian. Anyone that's looked at Rosicrucian material knows that, um, you know, one of the things that you do very early on is um, you, on, a, on a given evening, um, like say Thursday evening at uh, 7 o'clock, uh, and that, that's adjusted for whatever time zone you're in, you have a thought. You have uh, 
a prayer that every every member holds, and very often they're intercessory, and they're designed to, you know, minimize uh, conflict in the world, or bring about peace, or you know, solve some problem. And the Rosicrucians themselves have all these other ideas that I think you alluded to, like uh, out of body experiences, etc. But if we set that group aside for just a minute, and we look at something you just said power and we contrast that with the religions uh buddhism uh, taoism sikhism jainism um, christianity judaism there is one distinct difference between those traditional religions as they initially were born including confucianism uh, and the new age, and that is in this word power. Do you think that the new age per se has gone too far in ascribing to themselves um, the powers that one might also say are Christ consciousness in their nature? Well, I think it's a very it's a fine line because I do think that. Um, you know, positive thinking works in some way. If you tell yourself all the time that you're going to be successful, you, you can sort of, you know, program yourself to be more successful. But there are times when that just doesn't work, and tragedy strikes. And I think William James uh, put it well when he said, the skull will grin in at the banquet. And he was talking about what happens to the religion of healthy-mindedness when some tragedy happens. And you have to decide, well, if I do control my own reality, then is this my fault? And, I've, you know, I've, I know that New Age people will get cancer or they'll have back problems and their friends will say, oh, well, you're just not thinking positively enough, you know. It's you're... one of the traps, yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, I mean, I just think we have to be aware. And I say we sort of guardedly because I still sort of consider myself in that camp. I mean, I still try to think positively, but I did a lot of, of Jungian therapy, and I realized it's important to pull out the, the shadow images and the things that um, obsess us and the things that bother us and actually speak them. So when I was growing up, I was told, don't ever say I'm sick, because if yeah, you say I'm it, sick, you're going to make it happen. But Aaron, <laughs> don't you think we're conflating things here? I mean, there's a lot, as you said, there's a, a, a lot in the power of positive thinking. You know, Norman Vincent Peale has uh, worked. There's, there's a lot of that in the New Age, but but that's not, you know, was, the, I guess the positive thinking, even though Peale was a minister, as I come to think of it, the power of positive thinking does not necessarily have to be conflated with a, a, a spiritual belief, does it? No, if you don't have to believe, well, you know, it's interesting because if you believe that your mind has power and then the question is, where does this come from? I mean, you could debate that philosophically endlessly, whether it's a spiritual belief or not, or whether it's just about positivity, and then there's no, so so I don't know. And I realize that it's probably um, maybe threatening to people to have me, who's been through this, you know, difficult experience to try to say that there was some involvement of positive thinking ideas in this millennialism. But I do think there are some lessons to be learned. It may be that I don't, I haven't unpacked them very well as far as what, how I came to this. But um, 
Yeah, I, I don't know. For for me, I think one of the things missing in the new age is humility. <clears throat> and I do believe yeah. we arrogate. We just arrogate altogether too much power to ourselves, and and uh, too much wisdom, understanding when we live in a universe that. Uh, you know, when you start talking about divinity and infinity, uh, they are so beyond the scope of our ability to comprehend that. But but that's just my my thinking. No, I um, agree with you. I agree with you 100%. It's my one big complaint of the New Age is that it, it takes too much upon itself. It makes the claims are too big. It, well, and, you know, as a behavioral scientist, you can look at... You know, look at how invested everyone was that went into those bunkers in Montana. They'd given up their jobs. They'd sold their homes uh, or automobiles. I I had a friend who, not with Church Universal, but with another group, did this in the year uh, 2005 because of the alignment, planetary alignment. And, and, you know, you are so invested in this is going to happen that when you come out you have to rationalize what you did you you know that's the easier way psychologically speaking than to admit error and so we can look at a lot of these explanations including i believe a common one that still exists in the church and that it was all a part of god's plan and the psychologist can easily say, and that is a rationalization, a justification, and it makes you feel good, but it doesn't necessarily address reality. Your mother was really charismatic, and anyone listening to one of her sermons, even the recorded ones that I found on YouTube, find them really moving. She's so sincere, loving, accepting, and devout. Do you think it's possible to listen to someone like your mother and separate her eloquence from what might be the story that she's telling? I think people did that. I know uh, many people who, who set good boundaries, and that's one of the, my takeaways from the experience, is setting good boundaries with spiritual teachers. And there were people in the group who gave everything, and there were people who said, no, we're just going to keep coming to services. We'll build a little shelter, but we're we're not going to quit our jobs. And you know, hopefully, God will tell us when it's the right time to you know come up here or whatever. So, I think you know it's it's been compared. The charismatic bond has been compared to a love relationship, and as we know, it's really hard sometimes <laughs> to know what's what's right in a marriage or a love relationship. And I think that people simply need to have better glasses on when they're entering into that um, teacher-student relationship. Okay. I I could hog your time because I've got many, many, many more questions. But I'm going to go to the chat room and share your time a little bit now with some questions from there. Richard says, what does it feel like to live in a world without any certain answers after being ensconced in a world of absolute certainty? Good question. Great question, Richard. Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, It's challenging, but I I find it also liberating. Um, And I will just say that there were many people in the church that I think 
tried to live on more than one track. They did not believe everything my mother said. They were there because of the relationships, the people, you know, their longtime connections. So I think belief is, is complicated. But for myself, my changes happened slowly over time. And I realized that it's, it's simply a, a balancing act. It's kind of a negotiation to go through life. Uh, but I also think it's, how, it's what human beings have been doing for a long time. And I think it takes courage, but it's ultimately quite rewarding. All right. Mark has a question for you, too, Aaron. He says, Aaron says she's agnostic. What would it take to show her that God or spirit exists? I don't know. I mean, I don't think that there is something like that going to happen. I think that um, <clears throat> we, excuse me, we, um, people may have feelings. There are, you know, synchronicities. There are um, sort of paranormal events that may suggest some kind of larger reality, but I don't think that it it verifies any one person's view of what that reality is, whether you want to call it God or spirit or, you know, transcendent order. Um, so that's why I think it's, it's important to just experience it, take it in, but not have to know or box it up with, with a description. You know, I, I'm going to follow up question on the back of Mark, if you don't mind. Uh, you went through massive disappointment. And, you know, we all have psychological mechanisms, and none of us are free of those. And it would be very expected, if you will, normal, I'll put that word in quotation marks, for you to reject all religion, spirituality, etc., as a result of your experience. So my question, I guess, you know, becomes one of, a philosophical one to you. Uh, do you think your rejection and therefore your expectation that there is nothing that could show you otherwise might jade you just a little? Um, well, I'm just not sure what otherwise is. I mean, is it the Judeo-Christian God? Is it the New Age God, is it, you know, that's one no. of the reasons so, why well, I let's, think... Let's, let's make otherwise this, Aaron. Life beyond the physical, life after death of the body. So we, we won't talk about a creator. We, we won't talk about anything other than your personal consciousness surviving the physical death of your body. Sure. Well, I suppose I would have to say that would be when it happens. Um, you know, I've... I've <laughs> I've read, yeah, you know, I mean, I honestly, I empathize a lot with spiritual people. I consider myself to be a spiritual but not religious. And I think you can be spiritual but not religious and also be agnostic. And, and you know, it's funny because I'm at Rice and we have a, a professor here who interviews scientists and she's got religious scientists and she's discovered a new, a new type of scientist, which is the atheist, the spiritual atheist. <laughs> and that would be someone who's sort of kind of a little bit zen, but actually doesn't believe in God at all. And and so um, I just think we get really caught up with 
definitions and for me the experience is more important so i would i would go to a native american sweat and i have or i would participate in uh, um you know kundalini yoga which i also do um but it's just that i don't have to know that everything i'm being told about the interpretation of the experience is is true and i mean i think that's sort of the skepticism that i've come to after my experiences I see. Well, perhaps that's a healthy skepticism. We've interviewed a lot of, um, you know, scientists on this show, and uh, and you know, I, I I don't think we've yet come on an atheist, including Michael Shermer, who often is billed as one of the preeminent atheists on the planet. Because when you really get down to what atheism means, as we said earlier. So as an agnostic, you're open and uh, you're participating and you like how it feels and you feel more connected, and and we can leave it at that. Tell me this. Kundalini yoga just jumped out at me because it's (laughs) such stark contrast to 30 minutes uh, a crack twice. And your mother was married four times. So now wait a minute. Why? Why was she married four times if sex was a taboo and she was through having children? And what's kundalini yoga? Okay, well, um, I mean, kundalini yoga is a system that was developed by Yogi Bhajan. It sort of combines, right? uh, yeah, elements, but it's supposed to sort of raise your sexual energies, um, and which are supposed to be the same as the spiritual energy, and when it's reaches your crown you become enlightened so um it's a it's a name of a set of techniques it doesn't have to be sexual but i find it um i enjoy the way it makes me feel it makes me feel more alive and more connected um i was always warned off and warned away from from kundalini yoga in our, in our group because there's this orientalist bias against any kind of body-based spirituality that comes out of the the dantic um this sort of knowledge yoga that um my parents were influenced by and that theosophy was influenced by so it was this idea that oh we're going to take only the sort of high uh spiritual aspects of hindu religion we're not going to take the body-based stuff and the weird stuff and the sexual stuff which makes us really uncomfortable um so that is seen as leading towards death and, you know, black magic and all kinds of bad things in, in, in my mother's church's teachings. But I came upon it through a friend, and I said, hey, this is what I was being told not to do all those years. You know, it <laughs> just makes me feel more alive and more human, and um, it helps me with decision-making and other things, and it helps me get into a state where I feel more creative. So I'm not going to really care about what uh, somebody kind of labels somebody's put on it. As far as my mother's sexuality goes, obviously there's a lot, been a lot of discussion about that and why was she married four times. Um, you know, she actually taught that sex was an important part of balancing male and female energies. And that was her against these IM people who said you should never have sex at all. So people would come over to her group from the IM and say, oh, yay, we can have sex, you know. <laughs> um, but it's seen right. as, you know, very restrictive um you know she 
I know we're running out of time here. We're going to leave. We're going to leave everybody hanging right there, so that they go get your book, "Prophet's (laughs) Daughter" by Aaron Prophet. Aaron, tell everybody in forty-five seconds how they can learn more about you. You can visit eProfit.info. You can go to Aaron Prophet book page. I'm doing some workshops at the Texas Yoga Conference in February, and you can keep up with me by liking Aaron Prophet book page. And uh, again, the book is Prophet's Daughter, My Life with Elizabeth Clare Prophet Inside the Church Universe, Universal and Triumphant. Aaron, thank you very much. I love your candor. I love your openness. Uh, your joy. We're going to have to bring you back. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank our guest and all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. And remember, if you have comments on our show, do please let us know. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.